0: Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being part of our Wednesday night Bible study. I I really have enjoyed the last two weeks now uh, being back up here at the church building on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. So it's been really nice. And I look forward to the day when we can all be back here at the church building on Wednesday nights. And that day hopefully is coming very, very soon. So we look forward to, to being able to have Bible studies, Bible classes back here at the church building. But until then, I'm so thankful that we have this this medium of communication through which we can connect with each other. And one of the reasons we wanted to do this live is so that you can leave comments. Travis is over here helping me out and if there's anything uh, for which we can pray for you, we invite you to put your prayer requests in the comments section, uh, whether you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube, or maybe if you're watching on our website, you can hop over to uh, one of those two platforms, either YouTube or Facebook, um, and, and submit your prayer requests. And you can also do that on our website, but if you do that on social media, then we can pray for you tonight. So we invite you to do that, as well as just share with us where you're from, where you're watching this from, because I know that there are a lot of people that are watching uh, here in the, the local area around Plano, but there are also people watching across Texas, across the country, and even across the world. So uh, wherever you're watching from, if you, don't want, if you don't mind, put that in the comments section so we know, uh, we know who all is part of our Bible study tonight. We've been doing, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about swimming in a different direction. That's the metaphor that we've been using, that there are all kinds of streams, currents, that are running in different directions, in every culture, and ours is no different in that we have various cultural streams that are going in various directions. And if we're not careful, we will be carried away by those currents. And as followers of Jesus, our job is to not only recognize those cultural currents that have the tendency, the propensity to carry us in a certain direction, but also to have the, the courage, the faith to swim in a different direction, to follow Jesus across the currents and not with the currents, to go in a different direction. And so we talked about race and we've talked about politics. We talked a little bit about sexuality, but last week I just kind of had to call a timeout and, and I'm carrying on that, that tradition this week as well because it just it just hit me that we're just really not doing what we've been called to do. We really are being carried along by cultural currents in various directions. Our world, and we, we know this, don't we? We recognize it, no matter, no matter what we struggle with, no matter where we are on the political spectrum or the ideological spectrum, we recognize that our world is so incredibly divided and there is so much tension and animosity, and people saying and doing all kinds of horrible things to each other. And the church is supposed to be different. We are supposed to be the salt. We are supposed to be the light of the world. We are supposed to show people a better way. When when the world looks at the church, they shouldn't see a reflection of themselves. They should see something different an alternative way to live our lives, an alternative kingdom to be a part of, an alternative ethic by which to live, an alternative hope that goes beyond the things that the world puts their hope in. They're supposed to be able to look at us and above all things, see love. Above all things, they are supposed to be able to look at the church and see love. Jesus said, they will know they will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. I want to tell you a little story. I'll take time out from that for just a second. I want to tell you the way it is at my house when I tell my son to eat his food. When, when Holly and I tell our youngest son, well, probably both of our sons, to, to eat their dinner What we mean by eat your dinner is, we want you to eat all of your dinner. We want you to eat all of your food. When he hears eat your dinner, what he often hears is try your dinner or eat some of your dinner. So when we ask him, have you eaten your dinner? In his mind, he says yes, and he's telling the truth because in his mind, he's done exactly that. He ate his dinner, and by ate his dinner, he means he tried his dinner or he ate some of his dinner. But that doesn't meet our definition of what it looks like and what it means to eat your dinner. And and I think sometimes that's where there's a disconnect when it comes to this subject of love. When we say, love one another, when Jesus says, love one another, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, when Jesus says, love your enemies, we, we have this tendency to say, okay, yeah, Jesus, I did that, I, I love them, I, I love all of those people, I love everybody, I'm, I'm a loving person. In fact, when's the last time, when's the last time that you confessed, or any Christian you know confessed, I struggle with loving people? I struggle with loving people. When's the last time that you admitted, I struggle with loving people. If we're honest and we really look at what scripture says love looks like, then we should all admit, I struggle with loving people. So tonight, Let's not think about them, whoever they are, those people, the other people, the other Christians, or the people in the world, and let's just think about ourselves, just you and me, and we're going to think about ourselves. We're going to do some self-examination, some self-reflection, and ask ourselves, am I being loving? Am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving my brother and sister in Christ? Am I loving my enemies? Because it's really easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a loving person, I love everybody, I don't hate anyone. But, but does our definition of love match up with Jesus' definition of love? It's time for some really serious self-reflection. Not about them out there, but about you and I in here and asking ourselves, do we really love people? And self-examination is hard. Let me ask you that question. Maybe you put it in the comment section. Why is self-examination so hard? Why do you think self-examination is so hard? Really looking at ourselves and saying, do I really love people? Do I really love people? Am I really being loving? Why is that so hard? There's a, a... an anomaly, that's not the right word, but there is a uh, something that, that uh, those that have studied psychiatry or psychology and sociology and looked at people and how they think and how they think of themselves, they've noticed, they call it the better than average effect. That if you ask people if they think that they are below average, average, or above average on desirable qualities like intelligence, do you think that you are below-average intelligence, average intelligence, or above-average intelligence. Most people believe that they are (laughs) above-average. Let me say that again. Most people believe they are above-average, which of course isn't true because that's how you get an average, is that most people are average. Some people are below-average, but most people are average. There are some people that are above-average, but most people fall into the category of average. That's what it means to be average, but most of us think we're actually above average because self-examination is hard. And so I would dare to imagine that if you ask most Christians, do you think that you love about like the average person loves, or are you below average on loving, or are you above average on loving, most of us would probably say that we're above average. But are we? Are we? Because love doesn't come naturally. Love comes spiritually. Let me say that again. Love doesn't come naturally. It comes spiritually. Love, real love, the love of Jesus comes through the Spirit. And the only way we can learn to love like this is to follow Jesus and to walk by the Spirit. So let's look at a passage that we all probably know really well, 1 Corinthians 13, but let's get real about it. Let's get real about it. Because just talking for me, I struggle with loving people. I struggle with loving people. How about you? And listen to what Paul says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. If the church doesn't love one another, if the church doesn't love our neighbors, If the church doesn't love our enemies, then it doesn't matter what else we're doing right. Let me say that again. If we're not loving, if I'm not loving my brothers and sisters, if I'm not loving my neighbors, if I'm not loving the world, if I'm not loving my enemies, then it doesn't matter what else I'm right about. It doesn't matter what else I accomplish. It doesn't matter what else I do. None of that matters if I don't have love. That's exactly what Paul says. And he's talking to a church that is biting and devouring each other. He's talking to a church that's criticizing each other and hurting each other. He's talking to a church that is elevating one another above the other and thinking that their gifts are better than someone else's gifts. He's talking to a church that's leaving people out of the communion. And he says, listen, if I can do all of these great things, but I don't have love, it's nothing. It means nothing. It doesn't matter how right you are on any given issue, on any given topic. If you don't have love, then you're wrong. It doesn't matter how right I am about anything. If I don't have love, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And we say, yeah, but I, I, I do have love, Wes. Well, yeah, I, I am loving, you know, and that's why I tell people the way it is. That's why I stand up for the truth because I really love them. That's why I tell them the way it is. Wait a second, hold on. You don't get to define love. I don't get to define love. You and I don't get to set the definition of this is what love is. And I'm loving people because I'm doing this motivated by love. Just because we might have good motives, doesn't mean we're actually being loving. Just because we think we're doing this for their own good, we're telling them this for their own good, it doesn't mean that we're actually being loving. Scripture gets to tell us, Jesus gets to tell us what real love looks like. So let's look at what he says. What Paul says in verse four, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, if you've read the Bible for a long time, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, you've heard these verses over and over again, maybe they were recited or read at your wedding. But Paul is specifically talking about church life. And he says this is what love looks like. Love is patient. And the word patient, we talked about it last week, it means long-suffering. It means you have a long fuse. It means it takes a lot to set you off. It means you're willing to suffer a long time with people. Are we willing to suffer long with people? To realize that I'm broken, I'm messed up, I make mistakes, and so do they, and I'm going to suffer long with them. Rather than just saying, I'm done with you. You didn't do what I wanted you to. You didn't act the way I wanted you to. You didn't say what I wanted you to do, wanted you to say, and so I'm done. Love suffers long. Love is patient. He says, love is kind. One definition of the Greek word here from Thayer says, to show one's self mild. To show oneself mild. Kindness is the opposite of harshness. Kindness is the opposite of harshness. Now there's a time to be harsh, right? I mean, there's a time to to be bold and to say stop that. If somebody, if my kid is is out in the middle of the road and they're about to get hit by a car, I'm gonna be harsh, I'm not gonna be mild or gentle, I'm gonna tell them get out of the road and get out of the road right now. But that doesn't need to be our default setting. If harshness is our default setting, We are not being loving. And if we're asking questions like, well, where's the line? How harsh can I be before I've been too harsh? And how kind must I be? And how how far do I need to take this, Wes? Wait, those are all the wrong questions, aren't they? It's like when God tells us to be holy as I am holy or be pure. We don't ask, where's the line and how close can I get without stepping over it? Your job my job is to be kind. Be as kind as you possibly can. Be as mild as you possibly can. Be as gentle as you possibly can. This is our calling. This is what scripture says love looks like. It suffers long. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. We think about envy and we think, in fact, literally it means intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. Intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. And most of us, again, we'd say, Oh, I don't I don't envy anybody. I don't envy anybody. I'm I'm happy when other people achieve things or are successful. Well wait, wait. What we tend to do when we do self-examination is we tend to look at our best case scenario. On our best day, we don't envy people. On the best day or in our best relationships, we don't envy people. And if our friend gets ahead in life, our friend gets a new house, our friend gets a new car, we're excited for them and we're, we're thankful that they have that. But I want you to think about the people that frustrate you. The people that you think they're making all the wrong decisions in life. They're doing all the wrong things in life and I can't believe they do that and I can't believe they go there and I can't believe they do these things. And then they have stuff that you wish you had. And you think, how in the world do they get so fortunate, so lucky? That's a reflection of the fact that we don't really want what's best for them. We want them to get what we feel like is coming to them. And we want those things for ourselves. And this is a reflection of the fact that we struggle to love people. We struggle to love people that frustrate us. We struggle to to love people that make decisions that are different than ours. We struggle to love people that have different opinions. We struggle to love people that are doing things that we think, that we think are um, irresponsible or we think are are not wise. And and we look at their decisions and we say you shouldn't do that. And and then when it works out for them, it's frustrating because how come it doesn't work out for me? And I made better decisions than they did. And. Scripture tells us we should want them to have the very best. We should want them to to have these blessings. We shouldn't envy their success or their achievements. And then he says that love doesn't boast. It doesn't heap praise on oneself, and it's not arrogant. It doesn't boast, and it's not arrogant. Again, As we said before, that better-than-average effect. Most of us tend to think we're above average, when the truth is most of us are pretty average. Most of us struggle with the same kinds of things. Most of us are not above average. That's how we we come up with an average. Most of us are all going through very similar things and struggle with very similar, similar things and have very similar temptations and have very similar weaknesses. It's very hard to love flawed people if we don't think that we ourselves are flawed. It's very hard to love flawed people, and that's everybody, if we ourselves don't recognize our own flaws. But if we're willing to humbly accept and embrace the fact that we are flawed, and we make mistakes, and we're weak, and we struggle, then it's a whole lot easier to love others that do as well. And then he uses this word. He says, love is not rude. It doesn't envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. How would you put that in the comment section if you want to? How would you define rude? That's an interesting word, isn't it? Love isn't rude. And both in Greek and in English, the idea of rude has to do with doing something that is not acceptable in the current circumstance or socially acceptable. It's it's something that you do that isn't acceptable given what's going on. And we recognize that, don't we? That in some cultures, there are some things that are rude or considered rude, that in other cultures, that's not rude. If you go into one person's house and you wear your hat, they might not think anything about it, but in another person's house, they may really want you to take your hat off when you come inside. And so what one person considers rude, another person might consider acceptable. And, And let's think about the implications that that has for love. Love says you have to care. You have to care what someone might find offensive, what someone might consider rude. You have to care that if this person considers that rude and they tell you and they say to you, Wes, that hurts me, that's offensive to me. I I find that very rude that you would do that. That, Then I need to care because I love them because love is not rude. But but somehow I, I feel like there are cultural currents that say, I shouldn't have to care what offends anybody but me. I don't care what anybody finds rude except me. I only have to follow my own instincts, my own cultural norms. I don't have to care about what's offensive or what's rude to other people. But Paul says, no, love is not rude. Love cares. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, he says to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We have to try to look at the world through someone else's eyes. That's why we've been having these conversations. That's why these conversations are so important. Because we have to be able to look at the world through other people's eyes and understand that just because you didn't intend to be rude, you didn't intend to be offensive, doesn't mean that it didn't hurt someone's feelings. It didn't offend them, that they didn't find that rude. If I walk into somebody's house that has a custom of not wearing shoes and they tell me, Wes, we don't wear shoes in our house. And I say, I don't care. I wear shoes in my house. I don't care what you do in your house. That would be rude. And not only would it be rude, it would be unloving. And that's the kind of trap into which we fall constantly, don't we? Don't we struggle with this? I know I struggle with this. Because we have this, we have this tendency to say, "Well, this doesn't bother me, and I, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I don't care if it bothers you. I don't care if it offends you. I don't care if you think it's rude." But Scripture says love is not rude. Let's keep reading. He says in verse five, latter part of verse five, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not insist on its own way. I don't know about you, but I don't really know anybody that can't say from time to time we don't struggle with this. We want things our way. We want to do things our way. We want other people to see things our way. But love isn't stubborn. Love doesn't refuse to yield. Love doesn't push through and demand that other people yield to it. Love is willing to yield. Love is willing to surrender. Love is willing to submit. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Irritable means easily stirred up, just easily gotten frustrated. And and, I mean, who, who can say that we don't struggle with this? It's a natural thing, isn't it? to want to do things your own way. It's a natural thing to be irritable. But love says, I have to strive to not get irritated. So the next time someone irritates me, maybe the best question isn't, why are they so irritating? Maybe the best question is, why do I struggle so much to love them? Think about that. Maybe the best question isn't, why is that person so irritating? As if the problem is all his, as if the problem is all hers. Maybe the best question is, why am I struggling to be patient with them? Why am I struggling to love them? And then it says that love is not resentful. It doesn't keep track. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It forgives. Church, that's the only way this works. That's the only way this works. The world needs to see forgiveness in action. They need to see us being the kind of people that aren't resentful, that don't hold grudges, that forgive, that talk things out, absolutely. That admonish each other when the time is right, absolutely. But that aren't resentful, that don't hold grudges, that don't hold things over people's head. We let it go. We overlook offenses we cover over, we forgive, we move on, and we don't hold it against people because that's what God has done for us. Then he says in verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? He says it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I mean, who rejoices at wrongdoing? Why would anybody rejoice at wrongdoing? Well, maybe Maybe he has in mind something like what was going on in, in, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's talking about sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6. And he's talking about this, this man that, that was living with his father's wife and, and they were even proud of that. So maybe he's talking about accepting or, or being okay with or rejoicing at things that are wrong. Or maybe he's talking about the very natural tendency that we have to be somewhat gleeful when we see someone else doing something wrong so that we can talk bad about them or so that we feel good about ourselves by comparison. Do you remember Jesus told that parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee uh, that went up to the temple? And the Pharisee, he looks and He's praying to God, but he's really just talking to himself and he thanks God that he's not like these people or those people or even like this tax collector. That he's almost happy, gleeful, rejoicing at everybody else's wrongdoing because he looks good by comparison. And let's face it, we have a tendency to do the same, don't we? We have this tendency to, to want to talk about sin, but the sin we want to talk about is everybody else's sin, and it almost gives us pleasure to hear fire and brimstone sermons about somebody else's sin. You know, every time I've ever heard that in my life, we, we want some good fire and brimstone preaching, you know, we want some, some preaching that condemns sin, but what we're always talking about is someone else's sin. We want you to talk about them out there, those people, because it almost makes us happy that we aren't as bad as those people. In fact, we sing the song, Jesus is coming soon. And one of the lines in that song says, many will meet their doom. And we kind of sing it with a smile on our face and pep in our step. And it's always kind of bothered me that we sing it that way. Many will meet their doom. As if we're somehow okay with that or somehow that makes us happy. Many will meet their doom. Many are doing wrong, and many are lost, but that shouldn't make us happy. Love doesn't kick people when they're down. Love isn't happy to talk about them out there and how bad they are. Love goes out there and loves them, has meals with them, and tries to bring them into the family of God because that's what Jesus has done for us that's why we rejoice with the truth we rejoice at the spreading of the truth we rejoice when people's eyes are open to the truth we, we don't have any desire to 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 laugh over someone's misfortune or over someone's sin or over someone's lostness no desire to 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 Pat ourselves on the back for not being like those people. But we we go out to them, we rush to them, we we have this desire, this agenda to bring the world to God through Jesus, because that's what God through Jesus has done for us. And we rejoice with the truth and not at wrongdoing. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now we're talking about the circumstances of love. That love isn't circumstantial. Love isn't on one moment and off the other. Love isn't, you know, I'll stick around while things are okay, but if you really, you know, if things start going another direction, I'm out. That's not how love works. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is in it for the long haul. And church, this is what the Lord, sorry, this is what the world needs to see in us. This is what the Lord has called us to. This is what the world must see in us, the kind of people that are patient, the kind of people that are kind, the kind of people that aren't rude, the kind of people that aren't self-seeking, the kind of people that aren't resentful, and the kind of people that bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. They're not going to see it anywhere else. They're not gonna see it on the news. They're not gonna see it on social media. They're not gonna see it from politicians. They're not gonna see it from Hollywood. They've got to see it in us. We have to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that Jesus has called us to be. If they don't see love in us, where will they see it? How will they know the Lord? How will they know that we are the Lord's people if we don't love one another, if we don't love our neighbor, If we don't love even our enemy, how will they know unless we do what we are called to do? Let me ask you this, and maybe you put this in the comment section too, is which of these qualities of love do you find most challenging? Whether you type that out or you just think about it, I want you to consider that. I want me to consider that. I'm talking to me because I struggle with loving people. Which of these qualities of love do you struggle with the most? Think about that as we finish up here. He says in verse eight, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, there's there's so much that's in the context here of 1 Corinthians and what they're dealing with, with spiritual gifts and how Paul is trying to emphasize to them that all of these spiritual gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues, they'll be around for a while, but then they'll be gone. And what really matters is that which will not end, and that is love. In fact, he says these, these three things. So faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, the one that will last the longest, is love. Why? Because at some point, faith will... Fade away because we'll see God face to face. Hope will fade away because our hope will be realized and you don't hope for what you already have. But love will last forever. And that's what I want us to think about, church. It doesn't matter what else we're right about. It doesn't matter what else we accomplish. It doesn't matter what else we do. It doesn't matter how bold we are. It doesn't matter whatever. If we don't have love, All of that means nothing. So think about this. Even if I am right on every issue, if I don't have love, I'm wrong. Even if I'm right on every issue, if I don't have love, I'm wrong. We put a lot of stock in being right, don't we? We all like to be right, we want to be right. We want to do what's right and believe what's right and be what's right. But if we don't have love, nothing else matters. That's not to say that love is the only thing that matters. It is important that we do all of these other things and we believe what's right and we do what's right. Those things are important. But if we don't have love, then none of that means anything. That's exactly the way Paul begins this chapter. And so this is... This is the way we we swim against the currents. This is the way that we show the world who Jesus is, who we are. We cannot say that we love God, whom we haven't seen, if we don't love our brothers and sisters, whom we have seen. And God calls us not only to love our brothers and sisters, but to love our neighbors, to love strangers and even to love our enemies. You know, church, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, our enemies. The people in the world that we feel like are out to get us. And maybe you feel like there's a lot of people in the world out to get you, or maybe you feel like there's not very many people or nobody in the world out to get you or out to get Christians. But but one way or the other, whether you feel like there's a huge threat against Christians, or you'd feel like there's very little threat against Christians or against you personally. Your calling, what you should do about that is love everyone. You know, there's a saying, I even did some research on where this saying came from, that all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And that that calling, that idea that if we don't do something, evil is going to win. That saying has been used to provoke people in many different circumstances, many different situations, to many different callings to say, we have to do something. And I agree, we have to do something because there is evil in the world. There are bad things going on in the world. And here's what we do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil's not going to prevail. That's where the saying's wrong. Evil can't win. God has already won. God is already victorious. So you don't have to worry about evil prevailing, whether or not good people do something or nothing. Evil cannot prevail. But we should do something. We should absolutely do something. We shouldn't do nothing. And the something that we should do is to love. Everyone. And what does that look like? Paul tells us what it looks like. It's patient, and it's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't rude. It isn't self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is what love looks like. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with these things. And I need a reminder to you. If you don't have love, you're wrong. I need to be reminded of that. I need to strive to be more loving. I need to swim in this direction. I need a reminder that this is who Jesus calls us to be. We're going to say a prayer, and I don't know if there have been any um, prayer requests that have come in. I I don't think that there have, but um, if you have any prayer requests, feel free to submit those on our church website or put those in a comment, and we'll come back to them later, and we certainly will be praying for you. We need lots of prayers. We all need lots of prayers. I need prayers. I know that you do. I know that our church family does. I know that the church Throughout the world needs prayers. And one of the biggest prayers that we need is that we be people of love. That's what good men and good women need to do. We need to rise up and be a people of love that the world may see that we are followers of Jesus, that we love each other and that we love them as well. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for admonishing us, for warning us, for encouraging us, for teaching us what love really looks like. Father, I confess that I struggle to love. I struggle to be patient and kind. I struggle to be humble, and I struggle to not seek my own way. I struggle to not be resentful, not hold things against people. I struggle, Father, to bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. And I pray, Father, that you give me strength, that you give every one of your disciples strength to be people of love, that we might love each other with a tenacious spiritual love, that the world may see that something is different about what we believe and about what we hope for and about who we follow. Help us, Father, to not only love one another, but to love our neighbor And even to love those that don't like us, even to love those that hate us, even to to love those that want to do us harm, to love them, to do good for them and to them, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We pray, Father, that you help us to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Father, there are many people in our world that are sick. And Father, we pray for their healing and we pray that we may comfort and encourage one another, build one another up as we see that day drawing near. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for the hope that we have in him. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your shepherds that shepherd here and that are shepherding churches, those that are shepherding churches all over the world. Father, thank you for all of your people throughout the world. May we rise up and be a people of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.